Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The draft reading series celebrates the diverse and talented writing in our workshops that hovers around a given theme. They happen once per eight-week session every winter, spring, late summer, and fall. Writers and workshops are drafted by instructors and sent to the front lines to read their work. The final draftees of 2014 were Martha Kalin, Poetry, Jessica Long, Screenplay, Lynn Schwaback, Fiction, Kristen LeClaire, Nonfiction. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. This is our annual party, our big holiday party. It is meant to be inclusive of Christmas, Hanukkah, and Kwanzaa, and non-denominational kind of Zeusmas slash Festivus. Festivus. (laughs) Or nothing. Winter. Winter. Happy winter. Happy solstice. Then you're getting into science, and we don't want to appear as if we're (laughs) pro-science. Anyway, I'm Andrea Dupree. This is Michael Henry. Um, Together, we were crazy enough to found Lighthouse 18 or 19 years ago when we were young. Thanks. I feel some sympathy in that, but that's okay. That's great. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, A lot of you know that tonight we are celebrating the Beacon Award for Teaching Excellence. We take that very seriously here, and don't belittle what I'm saying because of my hat. (laughs) Um, I want to tell you a little bit about the Beacon Award. It is not a staff-generated award. It is members like you, and it is our board of directors, so it's all volunteers deciding on this award every year. Um, And then it's people like you nominating their favorite instructors, people who have changed their lives, who've blown their minds. Right. And, and this happens all the time. I have gotten used to getting emails. And this is not to be little if you've ever heard this as an instructor of um, people from Harvard and Oxford who studied at Princeton and MIT saying this instructor is better than any instructor I've ever had. Um, I've gotten used to that. And maybe it's made me a little smug. <laughs> I could argue that. I mean, I, let's get real. Um, so I'm going to read a little bit about the Beacon Award because, um, Gary Schombacher, are you here? So Gary's back there. He is our board representative on the Beacon Committee. Thank you, Gary. Um, so volunteers, um, staff this committee. I almost said man, but I'm not gender specific Um, and they convene for the past seven years they've gotten together to award this particular prize do we have the obelisk Uh, the The obelisk is here it it's a handsome obelisk it could it could be a self-defense weapon Uh, here's The past winners, some of them are here, of the Beacon Award. This was put together by members, students who have taken these workshops. They've funded it. They decide on who's going to get it. Um, Past winners include William Haywood Henderson. Uh, 
um, Alexander Philippe. Paula Younger, who's not here tonight. Sherry Codrin, who is here tonight. David Rothman. Chris Rancic. And this year's winner, who will remain a secret for another 10 seconds. So um, Gary Schombacher, the novelist and board member who chairs the committee, says, and I quote, Every year the committee comes away from deliberations utterly overwhelmed by the quality of our instructors. We marvel at our good fortune to be associated with this group of writers and teachers so unselfishly dedicated to helping us improve our craft. Our heads literally hurt. (laughs) from having to decide on just one deserving instructor per year. That said, Erica was a unanimous choice by both the committee and by the board of directors to receive this year's award. Erica Cross. So indulge me for a moment. After Erica Krause first contacted me to see about teaching at Lighthouse, she and I famously or infamously met over sushi, you may have heard this before, and spilled our entire life stories. I'd already known her work, which I first noticed in one of the New Yorker summer fiction issues in the early 2000s. Next to the story, there's a beautiful picture of Erica in a New Jersey marina. Not in, on a New Jersey, near a New Jersey marina. (laughs) She's balanced on a railing, and she's wearing a red dress. It looks like she's jumping for joy. If you were a young fiction writer also trying to break in at that time, your tendency might be to feel supremely jealous (laughs) of this beautiful, talented, funny woman. Her story nestled in between work by Jonathan Safran Foer and E.L. Doctorow, Other stories appeared uh, of hers appeared in the Atlantic, Plowshares, and other A-list venues before her collection Come Up and See Me Sometime made a splash and a spot on the New York Times notable list that year. To be honest, eating sushi and drinking sake, the ordering of which I yielded to Erica, who had lived in Japan for some years and will therefore always get ordering rights, I almost forgot how surprised I was she wanted to teach for us. Um, It seemed to me she could have her pick of academic jobs, and it wasn't until I really got to know her that I recognized the renegade spirit that probably made her, at least at that time, not so interested in academia. No one works harder than Erica, and I remember hearing about how fiercely she guarded her limited writing time. She works a lot, not only at Lighthouse, but as a private investigator um, and doing various martial arts, I I think, Um, and probably other things, too. And she has a gorgeous son and husband who take a lot of her time. So I heard her telling a room full of writers about how she would rebuff her husband's effort to so much as slip her a morsel of food during her twice-weekly writing sequester. All of this has paid off, which we all get to witness firsthand in the new year as her novel, Contenders, comes out in March. (laughs) 
watch our calendar for the launch date. We'll have a party. Um, and as a new story makes the pages of one story right around the same time... She'll also be taking the stage with our writer studio guest, Kazuo Ishiguro, on March 27th. So if you have your pocket calendars, save that date. There's very little I need to say about her teaching, but I will put forth as a program director that it's my dream to hire someone like her. You never ask her to go the extra mile. You just hear about it after the fact. Erica's a genius, her students tell me, stumbling over themselves in a gush, talking of Erica as if she's a rock star. I think she just fixed my novel, someone emailed. (laughs) The one I've been stuck on for a decade. She came up with a program to get me less crazy, someone told me. Stuff even my therapist couldn't fix. She was an obvious pick to mentor students in the book project, our two-year non-MFA program for people drafting and revising novels, stories, and poetry collections, her, and nonfiction and memoir. Um, her leadership and tireless efforts on behalf of that program have been one of the hallmarks of its success, which makes her a beloved colleague, not just of me, but of other instructors. I asked Bill Henderson, who started the book project with Erica over a year ago, what he wanted the world to know about her. And he said, quote, she's lovely and she scares the shit out of me. (laughs) But I'm pretty sure she won't hurt me. I think that's a great segue to introduce some of her students to come up and say a word or two. Come on up. All of that stuff is true. I've witnessed it firsthand several times. (laughs) I'm Gemma, um, and this is Susan, and we're we're in our first year of the second year of the book project. And Andrea already said what the book project is. I call it the Rebel MFA when I'm explaining it to people. (laughs) So that ties in probably because I have the Rebel teacher, too. (laughs) So we, all the first years, wrote a speech that Susan is going to read. And we wrote it as a group. So, to share the fruits of our labors. Yes. (laughs) This is a a group writing project by the first-year students in the book project who have Erica as a mentor. We are here this evening, a time of night that resembles the color of a hot tamale that has been incinerated by a thousand infuriated blowtorches to honor Miss Erica Krauss, who is, as a literary nurse to us, the grammatical lepers of Molokai, known as her first-year students of the book project. Does this prose look purple? We gasp. Are our metaphors mixed? We cry. Will we ever be free of the bonds of cliché? We beg. Yes, she tells us. And take out those questions you want your reader to ask. Ah, Erica, our teacher, literary nurse, our superwoman. As we look upon this vista of faces, indeed, as we face this vortex of visages, we are humbled by our hubris that would hurtle us hence and here. Huh, you say? And how, I say. How could we not stop the 
the hands of time, how could we not halt the cascading digits of our electronic sundials and stop in time and let our silence chime out this hour of reckoning here in this room? Chime aloud as we stand as one. Please, to chant along with Big Ben, the heartbeats of our love and respect for Ms. Erica Krauss. Hear, hear! Yes, friends, we, the novelistic lepers of Molokai, have created this tribute to honor our beloved Erica by showing off for you our skill with words. Which, had they been written six months ago, would not have been nearly so comprehensible nor so profound. We share with all of you, we're sure of it, a stupefied wonder at the superhuman patience and boundless optimism which exudes from our fearless leader as she shoulders our never-ending series of solicitations that she help us become the special scribes. She assures us we most definitely might very well, perhaps, maybe, (laughs) one day become. So to you, Erica, we offer the following... Our heads to be stuffed like a Thanksgiving turkey with the knowledge gizzards you impart. Our hearts open to understand the human experience as we experience you as a human who experiences things. And our hands for the type of slow clap normally reserved for jocks in Come From Behind Sports Stories. Slow clap. Slow clap. Speed it up. Speed it up. Speed it up. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That took six people to write. Of of which we're two. Yes, we are two of six. Um, But yes, seriously, thank you so much. We love her! You know, the sec- first year, the second year people, they have a little different personality. <laughs> We're not as organized. Yes, we are. Stupid Susan. <laughs> we, we planned Gatorade, but John couldn't get here tonight because he's really sick, but we were going to dump Gatorade on you. (laughs) So, we tried. (laughs) You want to start? Um, Well, I'd written all this stuff, but I'm not going to do it all. And I'm I'm saying I'm thinking I want to start it with something, a quote, and I'm looking through quotes and quotes and quotes, and I found this and I thought, this is what Erica did for me. It's a quote by Joan Didion. I write entirely to find out what I'm thinking. I'm going to start crying. What I'm looking at, what I see, and what it means, what I want, and what I fear. And Erica taught me to look at my work in that way. And, and I've, I'll never write the same as I did before I knew her. I've got all sorts of stuff written, but that was the most important thing I wanted to do. <laughs> So I just wanted to say um, I've been um, I've been able to experience a lot of great. T- 
teachers here at Lighthouse. I've been here for a long time. Um, but Erica has been the most amazing mentor <laughs> that I have ever had in my life. And uh, when I started the book project with her, I went ahead and started an amazing writer's block. And she was able to adjust to my needs and uh, help me feel like I could still be a writer and still work on my book. And I do. <laughs> but it's just been an amazing experience. And I think the first, the, what are we, we're the second years, the first group she was ever with at the book project. We all feel like it's been an amazing, special experience. And we're so grateful that you have this honor. So. Um, I wrote things down, but I also want to say that it's always a little strange seeing that Erica helps other people because she makes you feel like you are the only person like in the room and the only person that she's working with. So it's always kind of like, wait a second, who are you guys? <laughs> so I mean, that is the utmost compliment. But um, putting aside my piece of paper, I never felt like a writer, I could say that, until I started working with Erica, who made me feel like I was an author, and she was going to get me through this, and she is, and I am so thankful to be in her group and to have gotten to be in the book project, so I really think she deserves this award. We love you, Erica. (laughs) Erica, good. (laughs) They said be quick. They said be very quick. Oh, I also, I have um, been working on my particular piece of shit for the, last, for the last many, many years, 10 years, 12 years, and it was until you got your claws into me that there's a light at the end of, at the, end of the tunnel. I don't know what's in the light yet, but... <laughs> and you are um, the greatest cheerleader and bully uh, that, a, <laughs> that a writer can ask for, and, and this is so incredibly well-deserved, and I'm so... Glad to be able to stand up here and and congratulate you for it. And I, I also want you to know some of the back and forth we had. First, it was the um, Gatorade, and the new tradition: dump, dump a tub of shredded copies of our first manuscript. She had to wade through. That was from John, and then Amanda offered to bring a vacuum to clean it up. And and here's what John had to say: He couldn't be here. He's very sick. Erica, I so much wanted to be there tonight, but I've managed to be pretty sick. Probably better as I was heading the pour a tub of Gatorade over our favorite coach committee. But I did want to tell you how much your coaching, your words, your friendship has meant to me over this past year. I suppose the most succinct I can put it, you made the idea of writing a book possible. Further, you made it important to do. Thank you. And she's just a great person at bringing a team together because we'll all be friends forever now. (laughs) Erica, get up here. So this is going to be a little... I don't know where to put this. Um, (laughs) Thank you. So um, thank you. This is 
incredibly unexpected, both the sentiments and um, how much I'm crying. Um, <laughs> so I want to thank all of you um, who spoke. This is incredible for me and um, my students and all the other Lighthouse students and um, Andrea and Mike and the staff and the committee and the board for accepting my bribes. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, I actually don't usually win things. And before the beacon, the last thing I had won was um, in a Las Vegas casino. I had won bingo <laughs> two times in the same game. Game is um, yeah. And what happened then was uh, it, there were about 150 people in the room, and they all booed me and accused me of cheating <laughs> at bingo. Um, <laughs> so this is way better. <laughs> Um, so this award really means the world to me, especially knowing the quality of the teachers who have won it before and the talent of my colleagues who will win it in next year and, and beyond. But um, it makes me feel like a real yay-hoo, right? <laughs> yay-hoo? Because it's, or a con artist or something, because I, you know, I pretend I'm teaching, but really... You're all so talented. You teach each other and you teach yourselves. And I'm the one, inevitably, in every class who, um, who learns the most. And that's, that's the big con. So, but I'm happy to be part of the con. <laughs> um, so uh, I, you know, I feel like as a teacher I have to continually up my game just so I can have anything to teach you at all. And that makes me a better writer and a better person and a better teacher. So I... I feel enormously privileged to be part of such a thriving and talented group of people and such an amazing literary community. <clears throat> so I thank you so much for the honor. I'm going to start crying again. Thank you so much for the honor and the support. I really appreciate this award. <laughs> She's awesome. Um, Okay, so I'm going to just lay the groundwork for what we're up to for the next little bit. And what you guys might not know is the Draft a Reading Show is in its 24th iteration. Is that right? 24th? 24th. 24.0. We started doing that and we can't really stop. <laughs> I, um, what the draft is, is every session... We're kind of blown away by people in the workshops, and we, as instructors, feel like there should be some sort of big reckoning for, for these people that are amazing, who come in the workshops and write these amazing things. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to do two of those short readings, and then we're going to take a little break so everybody can get replenish themselves, maybe perhaps visit the facilities um, and do what whatever one might do for about five minutes, and then we're going to come back for the other two. And they're only ten minutes each. It is the best entertainment one might get um, on a Saturday night in December. So consider yourselves lucky. Um, this time, without further ado, I am charged with introducing two of the um, draftees, they're called, <laughs> do you know you're called draftees, um, whose instructors for reasons of geography could not be here tonight. Um, the first one, 
And can I see that Kristen LeClaire is here? Yes! I didn't get a chance to meet you earlier. Um, Catherine Eastburn, who teaches nonfiction writing for us, lives way down south and has a very busy life. But she really wanted this person to get up and read to us, and I'm very excited. Um, and here is what Catherine sent me uh, by way of introduction. Lighthouse writer Kristen LeClaire lives in Highlands Ranch with her husband Jason, her son Sam, age three, and Henry, age one. Don't worry if you don't have those kind of details for your draftee if you're here to introduce someone. Um, Kristen teaches English at Arapahoe High School, where exactly one year ago, senior Carl Pearson shot up the school library, killing fellow senior Claire Davis, then himself. Kristen and her co-workers were there, taking cover with their frightened students in surrounding classrooms, spending the most harrowing minutes of their lives wondering what could possibly happen next. In a Lighthouse class this fall, Kristen wrote for the first time about this life-changing event. Here she revisits the inexplicable, bizarre experience of unexpected loss and violence in a way that truly puts it in perspective for those of us who care deeply but don't know how to respond. Her work is a gift to all who hear the news of tragic school shootings and are paralyzed by our own grief and confusion. Kristen is a veteran of Lighthouse Classes, having studied memoir with Michael Henry, taken a weekend workshop with Erica Krauss, and studied creative nonfiction with Sherry Codron, Lisa Turner, and Catherine, in whose class this piece was written. Before Lighthouse, Kristen studied English at University of Pennsylvania, earned a master's in English education at Columbia, and a master's of English literature at Middlebury College's Breadloaf School. Kristen says that aside from the honest, intelligent feedback she's received from these workshops, she's also, quote, gained deep respect for anyone who has the discipline to write and dares to share their writing with other people. She is humbled and inspired to be part of this writing community. Please join me in welcoming Kristen LeClaire. Thank you. It's such an empowering thing to be able to share the story with you on the one-year anniversary of the shooting at my school. So, um, so thank you for listening. The story is called The Clam Before the Storm. I read a story once by Jorge Luis Borges about a magical library. Sunlight streamed through its cathedral ceilings, comforting the bowed heads of its patrons. This library's collection was infinite. The towering shelves formed a labyrinth, housing books with every possible combination of letters, even when the words were not really words at all, and the stories made no sense. Rather, the letters sprayed across the white pages like little bullets, riddling the books with inky marks no one could explain or understand. Some readers never found their way out. At least, I think that's what the story was about. I read it in its original Spanish with only my hole-punched worksheets of vocabulary and irregular verb conjugations to translate it. Also, it was existentialist, so its meaning likely escaped me. But when I opened the yellow pages of that old Spanish book, I found my 16-year-old self leaning against a tower of leather-bound, nutmeg-smelling pages. My body was translating the story for me. Now, as a high school English teacher, I am the ultimate translator. I translate the scratches of sophomore boys to essays about George and Lenny. I translate the eye roll of the girl in the third row to her breakup with the basketball player in the fifth row. I translate, with a giggle, 
group work evaluations that state, this project sucked, largely because one of our members was incontinent. <laughs> this was in response to a question about the group's overall competence. <laughs> I, I translate dreamy run-on sentences of a 16-year-old boy pining away for a girl with the face of an angle. Lately, I've been translating nervous glances to the lock on the classroom door every time someone shuts a locker too hard. These glances ask, are we safe? So I test the door handle right before returning to our discussion of Steinbeck with a little nod they translate as, yes, you are safe. I will keep you safe. I walked back into the Arapahoe High School library yesterday after being shut out for six months. Even its windows were blacked over like mirrors cloaked in mourning as its insides endured evisceration. It's not open yet to students, but the other teachers and I have been encouraged to walk through and make peace with it. Most things have found their new places. The old carpet, rubbed and spotted from 50 years of souls, is gone. It and its bloodstains were ripped out before the memorial services took place. The new carpet's fibers are stiff and bright, not a footprint to be found. The stuffed chairs have gone too, and pencil marks from decades of daydreaming boys and girls have been erased. The countertops are so black and sleek that everything seems to slide right off them, and the chairs are clean and hard, no softness to hold stains. In our old Arapahoe library, we walk through the glass doors, past the Arapahoe Indian statue watching over us, and into an alphabetical display of new hardback books with shiny protective covers and spines not yet broken. I'd make extra trips to the library in the last week of October, partly to peruse the annual pumpkin contest, partly to help myself to the candy corn and hot apple cider that Jan, the librarian's assistant, laid out for us teachers in the back. Jan wore black cat and orange pumpkin sweaters on Halloween and jingle bell earrings in December. When I needed help with the copy machine, she'd rip the paper tray out with a deep sigh, but her voice was low and the soft crinkles reaching out from her eyes and lips gave her a permanent grandmother smile. Wafts of cinnamon steam curled out of the silver urn she'd brought in for the cider, grazing the buzzing copy machine. Everyone and everything in the library was buzzing. The DECA girls clacking out their business presentation on the old Dells. Two boys from my third hour doing algebra homework and sneaking Doritos from their backpacks. The Spanish teacher hacking away flashcards on the paper cutter while chatting with the head librarian, Tracy Murphy. It was the buzz of energy, of things getting checked off to-do lists. It was a lullaby on Mondays, a hymn on Fridays. Didn't we all kind of grow up in a library? It was the sacred place of sing-songy story time and round carpets, the place where we fell in love with our teachers and lost our first teeth, where the walls were made of books and read posters. As the teacher turned each page, we'd lean in and lean in a little more until we could breathe her right in. We'd swing from one bold print word to another like they were monkey bars. We could sit with bare legs sprawled on a steam-clean carpet, tongues poking out, and backs relaxed into bows at ease. As a little girl, I'd spend the summer wandering the infinite bookcases of our white-pillared neighborhood library. While my third-grade friends attended morning mass and Jewish summer camp, I went to the Tremont Library in Old Arlington, a leafy suburb of Columbus, Ohio. I rode my bike under the green canopies of tree-lined asphalt roads where old Ohio farms had transformed into red-brick suburban homes with circle driveways. The Tremont Library rested in a sleepy neighborhood, its fire lane often occupied by moms in tennis skirts and gold earrings, dropping off their kids' books on the way to a swim meet. 
I'd stroll through the large glass doors and approach the chestnut altar of the old card catalog. I loved sliding out those smooth, narrow drawers, each card inside neatly charting the facts of a book's life. The cards were closely packed, and I grazed their tops with the palm of my hand as though I were stroking my mom's thick, short hair. The challenger had exploded. I'd failed my fraction test. My best friend was already sporting a training bra, and my piano teacher taught me the word mediocre by using it to describe my talent. (laughs) But here at the Tremont Library, the Dewey Decimal System ruled all. Here, the world made sense. After this brief worship, I'd head for the mystery shelf in the young adult room, past the Nancy Drews, and right to the Trixie Beldens. Trixie was a bold, curly-haired girl who solved mysterious misdeeds in her small town's caves and gatehouses. The scariest moments were only scary enough to keep me reading, and the climax of each story quickly resolved into a sensible ending. The ghost was just a peeved maid, the vampire a disgruntled heir, and the monster an angry boy. I touched each book, fingering diamond dust jackets and pages edged with red ink, and stared back at Trixie's wide, doll-like eyes on the peeling 1950s covers. I'd pull out the story I wanted, check it out with the library card in my jean pocket, and ride home with it in my backpack. With an orange orange cat curled up on my tan tan feet, I'd crunch pretzel rods and turn pages until Trixie's rough, tomboyish hands were mine. The dankness of the haunted mansion wet the skin on my arms. The clues, a frayed photo, tidbits of overheard conversation, shadowy sightings, were laid out before me, and I assembled them like a puzzle. Each mystery was solved. Good people got shiny medals, and villains often turned out not to be villains at all. And Trixie and I saw it all coming from a mile away. There were no press releases, no SWAT team masks and guns, ordering us to get your hands on your heads and fucking run. There were no 15-year-olds so terrified that they ran out of their shoes, dirty snow penetrating their naked feet for the first time. If Trixie were here with me, would her wide eyes be able to see all of this? The two of us could lift up her wooden-handled magnifying glass and examine the evidence, all of it spattered among the police report, my memory, and retold stories. Help me, Trixie, translate these clues. Fact one. Carl drops off his little sister at Arapahoe, nodding his blonde head when she says, I'll see you after school before closing the door. Fact two, Claire, a senior with sleek brown hair who loves horses, watches Carl barge through the glass doors, shotgun in his marked up hands. She asks him, what are you doing, Carl? He answers her with three bullets. Fact three, in the English office, I put down my hot chocolate, log into my computer, and hear three bangs from the barrel of a gun. Hollow, empty O's, swallowing the hallways. Fact four, I crouch behind someone else's desk, using another teacher's phone to send a text to my husband. This is Kristen. There's been a shooting at Arapahoe. I am okay. We are in lockdown. I don't believe a word of it. Fact five, my two boys from third hour eat and scratch out homework in the library when Carl enters, yelling, where the fuck is Murphy? Bandoliers cross his chest and shells fall to the floor as he shoots at the circulation desk. His fantasy of murdering our librarian, the man who had cut him from the debate team earlier that year, slips away. Fact six, Max, one of my tall sophomore boys, nearly slips in Claire's blood after bolting from the library. Fact seven, Jan, the librarian's assistant with jingle bell earrings, stands just outside the King Supers we've been evacuated to, gripping an empty cart. She doesn't seem to hear me until I ask, did you see it? She nods slowly, like a sleepwalker, her brown eyes locked on something invisible to me. 
Fact eight. The next day, students shiver in the cold, stuffing styrofoam cups into a chain link fence to spell out warrior strong before the candlelight vigil for Claire, who sleeps in a nearby hospital. Fact nine. Between the snow and Christmas lights, my department chair sends out a text on the darkest evening of the year. Claire's dead. The vigil didn't work. Fact 10, Carl's mom with gentle eyes and shaky hands pulls out my chair for me as I try not to picture Carl in their now half-empty home, still partially decorated from Christmas. I am there to tutor the sister he's left behind. Fact 11, warm stickiness seeps from my temple into my pillow, turning from blood to tears as I wake up with Carl's body in my mind. He is still smoking from the gunshot, blood soaking into the library's foundation. Our new Arapaho library had painted over, recarpeted, and sanded away these clues. I found out from the police report that Carl, after piercing the checkout desk with bullets and blackening the shelves with a homemade bomb, killed himself before shelves, uh, between shelves of E. Cummings and Robert Frost. Nobody saw this, according to the police report. Any students and teachers who stayed in the library were huddled under tables and locked in the tiny media room. At that time, that closet-sized room held our fanciest Apple computer, now I walk through a clean, splate, a clean space of flat screens, TVs with scrolling announcements, and surge-protected outlets. The surviving books have migrated from the walls of the library to its heart. Small worlds still beat in between their covers, and I can hear them even in the buzz of the high-tech group study rooms. Windows have replaced the burned library shelves, and student volunteers shuffle old books into new places. I'm not quite sure where to walk or if I'm allowed to sit down. I'm going to skip to the end here. After the shooting, the Arapaho Indian tribe performed a cleansing of our library in the hallway where Claire was shot. The ceremony was private, but afterward I could smell the sweetness of burning sage in the spots most concentrated with death. I wondered if the tribal elders had stepped into the library to find Carl's ghost standing in the corner, the rage on his face slacked into confusion. He turned the library into a purgatory. I hoped that the sweeping motions of the Indian's feathers, fanning the sage higher and higher, had brushed his death off the book jackets and into the air outside. Standing next to the new circulation desk, I try to imagine the DECA girls and the basketball boys strolling into this library. Backpacks full of trigonometry homework, Shakespeare plays, and those energy drinks in the tall black cans. I picture my sophomore boys typing their essays on laptops, giving them only a cursory glance before sharing them with me. Just down the hall with our office door wide open, other English teachers and I might ease the pain of grading by reading aloud the funniest errors in our students' stories. As it turns out, many people don't care to be taken for granite, and there's a growing cult of students who, interesting, interestingly enough, plan to spend the next four years in some kind of collage, and who doesn't enjoy a soft genital breeze from time to time. <laughs> But my favorite, my very favorite, is the heartsick young memoirist who writes that she is in the clam before the storm. <laughs> I like to picture a tiny clam shivering on the foamy edge of the shore. The heavy clouds move in, swallowing patches of blue sky with roars of thunder and singeing the ground with arrows of lightning. That little clam could be washed out to the deep at any moment, uprooted and taken for a ride. Yet there it is, wobbling between the wet thickness of the sand and the gurgling lip of the tide, like a toddler learning to stand up when, for the first time, there is nothing to hold on to. 
I can picture the student typing this brilliant image in the new Arapahoe Library. She's chatting, perhaps, with some student council kids at a high table in the library's cafe, and school announcements about homecoming, the homecoming parade scroll on the screen above her head. Throwing her bag on the ground, she stretches her arms into a sleepy yawn. I can see the rest of the kids in the new library lounging, too, long arms thrown over the backs of chairs like they're sitting in their own living rooms. As she and her friends laugh and type homework and eat cookies from the school store, the air around them quivers and lightens a bit. The humid, silent eye of the storm passes into something noisier, and she mistakenly trades her calm for a clam. Sometimes lovely things come from mistakes. She closes her laptop case, opens her plan book, and crosses off Get Ready for Tomorrow with a wavy blue line. Thank you, Kristen. Do you believe me when I say this is the best job ever? <laughs> Next, before the break, I'm going to bring Erica Krauss back up to introduce her, um, her writer, Lynn Schwebeck. Hi again. Um, so it is my long overdue pleasure introducing Lynn Schwebeck um, Lynn has began, I'll just tell you a little bit about her life and then I'll tell you about how I know Lynn. So Lynn began writing as a journalist, working as an award-winning legislative reporter with United Press International. In 2005, she decided to switch to the oh-so-lucrative career of fiction writing. <laughs> and she has won honorable mentions in Glimmer Train and One Story, or, sorry, Our Story Contests, and was also this year's honorable mention for the Alice Maxine Bowie Prize. Lynn has attended the Aspen Writers Conference and published fiction in the Maple Tree Supplement. And besides being a writer, she is also a, a really, really good artist and painter. And she, her work has been privately collected. And she owns her own marketing communications firm where she just designed her first book cover. So think of that for the future <laughs> for yourselves. Um, Whenever I see Lynn on a roster, I know it's going to be just a great class. I, um, I, she's been in my fiction workshop since 2011, and she drives in rush hour from Fort Collins to Boulder each week to listen to criticism from her peers, because, <laughs> because that's so fun, right? <laughs> but Lynn has absolutely thrived on it. Over the years, her, her work has evolved and evolved to the point where it has become more and more layered in shadow and light. Um, continually surprising both the reader and the author, which is her, the author. Um, <laughs> in case I wasn't clear. Um, her stories uh, address dire issues that are both very relevant to today and also unsolvable. And actually, there's a really uncanny resemblance between the first two stories, which you'll see. So she's going to read an excerpt from the middle of a story. So it doesn't end at the story. And if you want to find out what happens, you're going to have to ask her. Um, but the story she'll be reading from tonight is um, set in her oh-so-quaint hometown of the south side of Chicago. 
And in this story, she addresses difficult subjects such as gang violence, Down syndrome, poverty, and ghettoization with a grace that comes from her commitment and her personal connection to this work. Please join me in welcoming the very talented Lynn Schwaback. Thank you, Erica. Um, for those of you who are close to me, you'll know that I had a nervous breakdown this week. <laughs> and I owe an apology to Andrea and Jenny Wortman and Erica, but I also owe a huge thank you because you got me through it. And my son, Jacob, who kept saying, it's going to be okay, Mom. It's going to be okay. And also my husband, who can't be here, but... Um, the night before he left for Asia, I kept him up till four in the morning, uh, perseverating and going hysterical about this reading. So thank you <laughs> to my husband. Okay, so, and Erica, I, I have to just say a couple words, because this is your night, and you so deserve it. Um, and as Gemma was talking, Gemma always takes my words. She does it in every <laughs> workshop, and she did tonight. So I'm sitting here trying to think, what can I say about Erica? And... I just think, find the truth, find the truth. Andrea's telling me in workshop, find your truth, find your truth. And the truth is, you changed my life. And it's, it's not only because you're a great writer, and it's not only because you are a fantastic teacher, but it's because of who you are and just your being in this world. And I have had the honor of getting to know you and sitting in workshops with you and we all know that workshops can be very personal experiences, and something in me has changed for the better from knowing you. So thank you. So um, as Erica said, I'm going to be reading a story called The Almighty Black Z's. Um, my protagonist, written in the first-person narrative, Natalie lives on the south side of Chicago. I'm going to read the, the middle section of the story, so I feel like I need to give you a little bit of background. Um, it's not an easy place to live, and she will be starting high school in a high school that's not an easy place to go to school. Her older sister, Janine, is also um, at this high school. She's a senior this year. And... Janine, her sister, has taken over some of, had to take over some of the mothering roles in this family because their mother uh, grew up, was a teenager in the 1960s, and herself dropped out of high school when she was a freshman. She lived in California on Venice Beach, and she was stoned most of the time. Um, in addition to starting high, this particular high school, my protagonist, Natalie, um, is also encountering a high school which is starting to implement a new policy where they're um, going to immerse the mentally disabled kids into the core subject areas. So in one of the first scenes, um, Natalie is in science class, and there's a mentally disabled girl named Heather who is being cruelly picked on. And Natalie doesn't participate in this, but she doesn't stick up for Heather either. And this leaves her a bit unsettled. So where I'm starting the stories, we're a couple, couple weeks into school. Because rival gangs controlled the bathrooms at different times, it took a few weeks for my best friend Shannon and I to stake one out. Shannon, like my older sister Janine, set her goals around getting out of the south side. 
Unlike Janine, however, Shannon was not a geek. She and I hung out with a group of white hats or athletes, as well as some goths and some quirky academic types. We excelled and we indulged. We finally discovered a first floor corner bathroom between second and third periods. Here we could catch up and off and down a small Tupperware container of vodka that Shannon brought in her backpack. Two other girls, also on student council, usually joined us. One day we stood in front of the mirror drinking and putting on makeup. Heather Orsky fumbled through the door. One of her traveling eyes looked at us while the other gazed over the stalls. She gripped her books in a bear hug. One of the girls started chanting, The Orsky family started. When Heather Orsky farted, they all became retarded. The Orsky family. I felt my esophagus spasm. Heather Orsky had Down syndrome, and as she walked, she dragged her left foot because her right leg was shorter than her left. She hobbled into the stall. Want some vodka, Orsky? Another girl said. Here, try some, Shannon joined in, pushing the plastic bowl through the door's opening. They waited for my contribution. I put my hand on top of the door and shook it. Have a good shit, I said. I could feel the door hit her body. If you take a look at it when you're done, you'll see that it looks like you. I grabbed the vodka and chugged it, and then I threw the bowl and stormed out. A few weeks later, during third period, I doodled on my math folder while Ms. Marcioni glanced at me from behind her massive desk. The equations in front of me remained unsolved. I imagined myself making it to the state tennis tournament. I thought about an upcoming, upcoming rave Friday night. I thought about Heather, who I'd seen brushing her body against the school walls, trying to stay invisible from the throngs of pumped-up students between periods. If Heather left the South Side, if she moved in with a relative in a North suburb, or if her family won the lottery and sent her to a private, safe school, she could never escape. She would never be able to upgrade herself. I couldn't sit a minute longer. I asked Marcioni for a hall pass to use the bathroom. She asked me to step outside the classroom. Is something wrong, Natalie? You seem anxious to me. I think I have a problem. She folded her chubby arms over her chest. What kind of problem? Family? Drugs? Boyfriend? Not that. I can't concentrate. That's what I'm asking. If you have issues at home or with a boyfriend, it will affect your concentration. Family is fine. My father isn't banging me. She put her hands on her hips. Natalie, you know that's not what I meant. But I knew she did. I'm fine. I have to go. I walked away from her. The empty halls, windowless, seemed wider and longer without the crush of students. The lights were dim. I avoided the corners and corridors used for drug deals and sex. I walked briskly to the closest bathroom, smelling traces of sweat, perfume, and floor cleaner. From a stairwell leading down to the second level, I heard a threatening voice. As I approached, I saw Heather Orsky pushed against the wall about halfway down, her body smashed into the banister. A bald gangster stood over her. Tattoos covered his large forearms. His right finger poked her side. Come on, retard. Come on, move it, retard. You so retarded you make my dick sweat. Heather whimpered. I remembered pushing that bathroom door into Heather, and I imagined her in that stall with that same terrified look. Hot blood rushed to my face. I walked down the stairs, stopping two steps from them, close enough to see his left eye, swollen, red, and ringed with scratches. The start of a mustache ringed his upper lip. Leave her alone. I barely spoke above a whisper. What'd you say, girl? You getting jumped into some girl gang? No initiation. Just leave her alone. 
My gaze traced the Z tattooed on his right cheek. Janine told me that the Zs were the scariest trouble boys in the school, but they don't make it past freshman or sophomore year because they end up dead in juvie or jail. Strangely, his face turned into a blank page and his eyes became unfocused. I have to do this, he said. I got no choice. I swung back my leg, and as my foot came forward, as I felt the muscles in my thigh tightening, Heather's horrified eyes circled from me to the gangster to the walls and back. Her mouth opened, her cheeks wet, flushing purple. In the split second before my foot connected with his crotch, a smile covered his face. My right foot smashed into him as my left foot slipped. I lost my balance and vibrated down the metal edge steps one vertebra at a time. Pain shot through my spine and into my neck as I landed. He gasped as he bent over and his baggy jeans bunched around his ankles. I screamed help, but it came out sounding as dented as my body. Heather was snorting back her tears. When the school's police officer finally arrived, my head lay against the cold cement throbbing. The Z had vanished. I knew I was going to miss the tennis meet. The next day I stayed home telling my family that I had accidentally slipped and fallen down the stairs. My mother massaged my legs on the couch, rambling on about her life on the beach and how much she missed the ocean. Lake Michigan scared her. We should have stayed. I should have convinced your father to stay. You would love living in L.A., Natalie. In L.A., I felt so free. My mother's stories made my body hurt even more. Note to myself, never let one era of my life define every other. I stretched and my mother's hands dropped from my legs. Bam! Something hit the front door. I froze mid-stretch. My mother jumped up. Wait, I said, firecrackers exploding in my head. Someone could be trying to break in, she said. They would see the televisions on, I said. She studied my face. What's going on? Some girls hate that I made the varsity tennis team. Shannon had called earlier from school and confirmed what I already knew. I had kicked a member of the almighty Black Z's. Shannon said she was scared. They know I hang out with you. My mother relaxed her shoulders. I never would have made it through high school. Girls are bitches. Are they threatening you? As I forced my legs off the couch, it felt as if someone had taken a crowbar to my spine. Maybe. Don't worry about it. Shannon probably dropped off a bag of books at the door. Homework. My mother cocked her head as if trying to stimulate her synapses. Even she would know that Shannon wouldn't throw books at the door and leave. It's okay, Mom. I'll check. It has to do with these, bitch these bitches, I'm sure. They wrote slut on another team member's garage door. My lies were getting better. Terrible girls, terrible girls, she said, walking into the kitchen, shaking her head. As I inched open the front door, I sensed my mother stealing glances toward me. The screen appeared intact. On the middle of the porch sat a brown grocery sack, its sides twitching. I threw open the door, grabbed the top of the rolled-down bag, and stepped quickly to the side of the house. It wasn't too heavy, but whatever was inside fluttered. Large Zs were printed on both sides of the bag. My heart sprinted as tears filled my eyes. Sudden, jerky, sudden jerking forced me to drop the bag on the patio, a cement square holding a rusted Weber grill. The Zs shimmied. My mind rotated through, alter, through alternatives, hitchhiked to California and begged my grandparents, who had never forgiven my mother to let me stay, jump a train to Wyoming, or go south to Florida to work on a pontoon boat. Anything would be safer than staying here. The bag's contents settled. Are you okay? My mother's voice came from the front door. Fine, Mom. It's just a bag of dirty tampons. Taking it to the trash. It's the bitches. <laughs> I could hear her mumbling as she entered, as she returned to the house. I jerked open the Weber and threw in the bag, slamming down the cover. I pressed my hands against the lid, promising myself that I wouldn't return later, wouldn't let my curiosity overtake my sanity. Leave it, I repeated to myself. Let it die. 
I entered my bedroom with my nerves crackling, kicking at piles of clothes on the floor and setting them airborne. Janine came through the door like a tornado. Idiot, were you trying to commit suicide when you kicked an almighty Z, or was this your way of getting down his pants? You're disgusting. You attack a a gangster, putting us all in danger, and you don't tell anyone? Figures, I said. You're worried about yourself, afraid he's going to come after you if he can't get me? You attacked a convict over a retard. I pictured Janine as a lawyer, executive, or bank president, as someone I abhorred. She would make it out of here, out of the south side, but she had all its evil baked into her. Stop saying retard. The Z that you attacked, do you know what his jumping in was? He raped an 80-year-old woman. He followed her home from the grocery store and dragged her into the backyard when she got out of her car. After he raped her, he jumped on her feet, breaking both of them. How do you know that's how he broke her feet? Who the fuck cares? Her feet were broken, smashed, but his balls are in a ringer. He had no idea that the woman he chose to rape was the great-grandmother of another Z. Thank you. Lynn, thank you. That's beautiful. And disturbing and upsetting and <laughs> devastating. We have two more readings. This is going to be delightful. Um, the first one is I'm, I need to introduce our poetry book project leader and Grand Lake Retreat Troubadour. <laughs> if you ever come to Grand Lake, there will be a cloud of happiness around Chris Rancic's cabin and a lot of guitar playing and only a little bit off-key singing, although Chris is always on-key. The rest of us are a little bit off-key. He is one of our long-time instructors and a... What? And a... (laughs) And a wonderful poet himself. He won the Beacon Award for Teaching Excellence. Was it last year or the year before? Last year. Um, His most recent book is Language for the Living and the Dead. And he's going to introduce a student for the draft. Chris Rancic. I want to do the propeller thing with the... That was pretty cool. Okay. All right. Great. I, I am so pleased to be able to introduce Martha Kalin to you this evening. Many of you know her. Uh, some of you know her, and, we'll, and the rest of you will know her. Uh, Martha writes that she fell for poetry as a girl growing up in a small town in eastern Tennessee, and that love of poetry has followed her all her life, uh, all the way to Colorado. Um, where she spent a decade living and teaching yoga in an ashram before moving on. She now works uh, a career in social work and healthcare management. So uh, I love knowing what people do for a real living. Uh, and uh, right. Martha is the author of a chapbook, Afterlife in Mango, and a longtime lighthouser. Uh, she's completed the Poetry Master Class and is currently a member of the Book Project in Poetry where she's working on a new manuscript and also keeping her compatriots grounded. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
And I've been reading um, Martha's poems for four or five years now. I can say that her poems affect me as if I am being sung to. Uh, this was the best that I could come up with uh, to explain that. So the voice to me is a familiar voice, but it's coming from a very deep place. And the melody of her poems slows me down, which is one of the reasons I come to poetry. And it also makes me listen more closely and more openly. So I don't say any of these things gratuitously. They were the best things that I could say to describe Martha's poetry. Anytime a new poem of hers comes uh, across my desk, I'm always anxious to read it and see what she's doing next. So you'll see what I mean now. Uh, give it up, Martha Kalen. Wow. Thanks, Chris. Um, this is, um, I'm so honored to be here and also terrified. I think you told me 10 people would be here, right? Okay. So, um, wow. <laughs> so I wanted to start um, just reading a couple things from my chapbook, Afterlife in Mango. Um, as Chris said, I did spend about 10 years living in an ashram. And uh, just two years ago, moved back down into Denver. So um, this poem came out of that experience, which I think of. I had heard there was going to be some kind of theme about hibernation and so on. But at any rate, um, I kind of think of this as uh, what it must be like to be a bear coming out of hibernation, um, to move out of the woods and, uh, and move back into Denver. The Whisper of Orchids. First days down from the mountain, I couldn't find the moon, not even its semblance in the drifting sky. Yet in the new shell of my house, orchids whisper into ears that have heard since before I was born. Freedom, freedom, freedom. I hear sirens circling like coyotes. Traffic rippling like wind in the pines. I know the pavement will take me anywhere I want to go. Lost, I could share a stoop with pigeons, stare into space that isn't death, and try not to fear what is. Could muffle myself until I'm not here, missing the crisp truth of stars, the low moan of mud after rain. Listen, a lone bud on the potted orchid opened its throat this morning, unleashing such passionate sound. <laughs> um, and the title poem, Afterlife and Mango. Only a simple bed in the whitewashed room where your dark body died. A cinder block wall cools my back and open windows carry calls of school children in their foreign language. All around drones the steady hum of lives to come. Will I find myself vaulting in again and again to this room your after image pervasive as sunlit dust. 
Perhaps you too had to find your way through swirls of loss before it all came clear. I don't know where we go in the vast space between lives, but when the mango splits open, it astonishes me. me about that. I've never heard that before, but okay. <laughs> I'm glad I was warned. Okay. <laughs> um. The next poem is inspired by A.R. Ammons. Some of you may know he's a great poet um, and also a lover of taking walks, and this poem ins- uh, was definitely inspired by him and his walking. It's called Still. Walk with me there, where the unrippled pond becomes itself riveting, where reeds silken in eddies, where the smallest seeds pride free from spires of juniper, where light shafts royal rapids and pines simply meld into long blue shade. We'll walk on, we'll hold on, each moving each, the bush and the brook, even raptures subsumed in the still of the current. In a silence held lightly, walk with me there. I get it. Um, And this poem was actually inspired by two great uh, writers, Adrian Rich and Ann Carson, more um, because I I really took a lot of uh, from them of courage to be able to really speak um, of painful experiences and uh, integrate that into your writing. This is called The Truth About Why. Why you always left the door open a crack. Had to hear the moans of parents making love. Why the skinny cat was free to come and go. Why your mother's words struck you like a cold wind on your neck. Why you didn't cry when the man in the woods put his hands down your pants across from the lumberyard on a Saturday morning. Why you ran and ran to tell your parents. Why they never spoke of it or held you close because of it. Why hunger's flare drives out air. Why anger is glass broken into fine enough pieces to walk on? Why you stop sleeping in any familiar way? Why thoughts are wolves that stalk your silence? Why they won't be stilled for anyone except for one who comes to you, a different stranger who wraps himself around you like a scarf to keep your neck warm.
<laughs> get used to that. Between Your Sleep and Mine, this poem is in six parts. One, six years after your cancer, you live in a different time. The thud of apples as they drop on the roof in the night signals a shift, a gathering of seeds. Each singly pressed burst of tree released down the shingled slope to land at your door. Two, light lasts longer. Bronzes fields where roots once sheltered slave blood. The past is just a skin you don't hold on to. A beautiful woman rescues your severed fingers and puts them on ice. Three, Slow, melting summer, making love on a hundred count threads of spun cotton. Come in, I say, and in your dream, a blonde woman walks right through the wall into the room. Four. Rows of cotton pickers move in rounded waves. You learned your lesson Never let anyone see you give a white girl a gift. Five, you give me flowers. First, a peony picked from the shade of the apple tree. Barely open, pale, but then it starts to bloom and just goes on. A lovely blonde who makes herself at home. Get out of here, you scream, and I'm not certain who you're talking to. Then one red rose in a slender vase, then three, then 18 tiny buds. Six. Everything I have is steeped in privilege. Waking early and returning to sleep as if there will always be more. The cooing dove on my balcony reminds me of Melville's little lower layer. The white wall that helps me sleep keeps you and your reassembled black fingers awake. (laughs) Okay. One last poem. Um, I've begun to appreciate my mother more and more the older I get because she sends me these uh, odd little um, articles that she's cut out of newspapers and magazines. (laughs) And they always inspire great poems. So, at any rate, uh, this is called What I Never Knew About Rainbows. One. Some treasures aren't found, but circle outside time, dark and numinous, the way storm clouds gather from nothing, and notes from a blue song slink upstairs when I'm trying to read. The sky is crying, tears rolling down in sheets, Elmo James and the broom dusters. The bookmark I'm using is an article my mother clipped from the Christian Science Monitor, Five Things You May Not Know About Rainbows. 
In the narrowing space between lightning and thunder, I grow curious. Two, Coach Atkins chases me through the empty halls of the high school. Clark, you're going to burn in hell. He doesn't like one of his cheerleaders stealing a smoke during gym class, especially one who'd been reborn like he was from the white plaster baptismal pool. Three, three rabbis wait outside the mikvah for me to finish my bath. Their praying moves me, though. I don't know what to think about God. Afterwards, we sit at a shined wooden table big enough for 12. The rabbis, in all their kindness and pain, can't understand why I want to become a Jew. Four. I walk out of the muddy, laden pond in cloth the color of flame. I hold a begging bowl and stick. Everything else I've left on shore by the boat dock. An empty canoe twirls loose in the sun. Under the brutal blue temple roof, a baba puts his hand on my head, smoked. There goes my marriage, smoked. The curly-haired Jewish guy from New York, smoked. The daughter who once clung to my arm like a sleeve. And all of us waiting for rain. Five. I drive down Cold Creek Canyon, a road split open by flood. As leftover drops of rain bend the light in a way I may never see again. Thank you. I hope I get full credit even with the hat when I say, Chris, you were right. I feel like a better person. That was beautiful. Thank you. Um, For this last reading, I want you to picture kind of a utopian, kind of Paul Bunyan figure. It's Paul Bunyan, right? I mean, this guy is probably like seven feet tall. Is he? Matt Ferner. He's, he's at least 6'6", six, six, if not 6'7". Six, <laughs> and every like square inch of him is full of enthusiasm. He teaches screenwriting for us, and he used to live here in Denver. Um, now he had the misfortune of moving away. We had the misfortune of his moving away. Um, he is like the pot correspondent for the Huffington Post. Um... <laughs> He is enthusiastic about pot, but he's more enthusiastic about good stories. And he nominated our next reader. He's teaching online for us. Those of you who haven't taken an online class, if you have the disposition, if you have the stomach for it, freaking sign up. It's amazing. I'm teaching one right now. It's blowing my mind. Um, Okay, so here's what Matt Ferner wrote to me. 
when you're a parent, you're not allowed to tell your kids when they are your favorites. So hopefully as a teacher and mentor to Jessica, it's allowed for me to say wholeheartedly that you're one of my absolute favorites. (laughs) Exclamation point. And it's not just because your writing is energetic, immediate, oftentimes hilarious and heartbreaking, all of which it is, and frequently. It's because you've got a heart of gold, and despite all that immense talent that you display on your pages, you don't wall yourself off to your fellow writers in class, just the opposite, in fact. You couldn't be warmer, more open, more generous, more attentive, and couldn't be trying harder to help your fellow writers crack open their stories with that same beautiful brain that makes your pages sparkle. It's just my pleasure to know you, to get to read your pages each week, and to someday bask in your glow when your scripts are finally made into films! And only 5% goes back to Lighthouse. (laughs) And I'll get to say, I knew her. I was her teacher. But the truth is, you've done it all your way. In your own voice and with your own style. An original artist through and through. Jessica Long. Being a screenwriter, I have the pleasure of drafting readers. So I would like to call up Jenny Taylor Whitehorn. One of my favorite screenwriters. Christy Feltz, my longtime partner. And Jeanette Matusiak, who has generously volunteered without even knowing what she was going to read. So because this takes place, or the scenes you'll hear tonight take place at the end of Act 1, so I'm going to give you a little bit of background information. Poolside is about a boy-crazy girl suffering from the loss of her dad and a closeted gay boy shipped off to his grandparents who find solace and struggles in their blossoming friendship during the summer of 1988, the summer that will change them forever. Up to this point, we meet Abby, 15, Bookishly pretty, but not at home in the land of typical teenage girl, at least not in her hometown of Colorado Springs. Abby and her mom are dealing with the recent death of Abby's dad. She rigs a prank at the local swimming pool, filling it with bubbles, all to impress the boy she's crushing on. The result? She's banned from the pool. (laughs) Abby's mom, Bet, the remnants of gorgeous after life got the upper hand, is struggling with severe depression, which is expressing itself as hypochondria. But, Bet, but Abby doesn't understand this. To make Abby feel better after the bubbles incident, Bet gets her a pool for the backyard. I will be reading Bet's lines. They're brief. Max, 16, sports the coolest flock of seagulls haircut. <laughs> but, it's, <laughs> but it's dweebed down by his choice of clothing. <laughs> Max is secretly in love with the boy who's been his best friend since kindergarten. Partially to impress this boy, Max throws an epic pool party that ends with him ruining his mom's vintage Chanel suit. Max's parents sent him to live with his grandparents in Colorado Springs for the summer. 
And then we have Estelle Sapienti, Max's grandmother. She is, stylish. <laughs> she is stylish enough to be an old Hollywood dame, and she might be a bit of a lush. <laughs> we'll start with the scene where Max and Abby meet for the first time. Exterior, Sapienti House, porch, day, summer, 1988. Estelle and Max arrange food and drinks on a table. She wears spectacularly large sunglasses. Max seems stiff and unsure. Bet and Abby approach the house. At seeing them, Estelle raises her mimosa glass. My sweet darlings, you made it! <laughs> Max turns to look. Abby gawks. Max is a vision with that flock of seagulls haircut and his white plastic-framed sunglasses. Abby, your mother tells me you're having quite the summer. I didn't realize you guys talked about anything other than my mom's medical symptoms. Estelle and Bette gape. Max notices. Regaining her composure, Estelle gestures to Max. This is my glorious grandson, Max. Max, this is Bette and Abby. (laughs) He shakes hands with them both. Your sunglasses are wicked cool. (laughs) He shrugs. Abby gives him a dirty look. Estelle ushers them into chairs and passes around the food. Abby wants to be a computer programmer. Isn't that something? What kind of computer do you have? I don't. (laughs) How can you be a programmer if you don't even have a computer? What do you know about it? Max, you'll have to come over to the pool and hang out with Abby. Mom. It's new, so Max can help break it in. Right, Abby? Abby gives a tight smile, her body language defensive. Max and Abby will spend their afternoons together, a majestic summer poolside. (laughs) Estelle and Beck clink glasses. Max and Abby stare at one another, weary. Exterior, neighborhood street, day. Max trudges along the sidewalk, sunglasses on. He walks past Abby's house. He stops at the next significantly nicer house checks the address. Then he steps back, realizes the tiny carriage house is it. Max looks skeptical as he approaches the Conklin house. He rings the doorbell. Abby opens the door, ushers him in. He steps into the shabby living room. Max stares at a large family photo. It's nice but amateur, like they had it taken at a discount store. It features a slightly younger Abby and Bet with an attractive man. Abby keenly resembles the man. That's a pretty picture of your mom. The guy, your dad? Abby startles. Yep. He didn't come over the other day. He's a a long-haul truck driver. Travels all the time. But he brings me cool things. I want to travel someday. By backpacking Europe, I bet. Not an 18-wheeler. Max pulls soda and snacks from his bag, hands them to Abby. She leads him into the kitchen. She gets glasses. He reaches into the bag again and takes out photocopied pages. (laughs) <laughs> Estelle sent this for Bet. Abby takes the pages, scans them. She scowls. They're copied pages from the Merck Medical Manual. <laughs> Ready for the pool? He nods. She opens the door to the pool. Abby watches Max's reaction. His shock is obvious, even behind his sunglasses. A large but shallow plastic kiddie pool and two cheap adjustable lounge chairs take center stage on the lawn. 
Abby smirks. This is it. <laughs> she goes to the pool and pulls out a chair for Max. I really come here for the view. <laughs> Max gingerly puts his bag down. Abby settles in and sticks her feet in the water. She delights in his discomfort. He tries to get situated, but he does not look relaxed. Refreshing. Silence. <laughs> what about swimming? Are there lap pools or anything around here? There's a, great public, there's a great public pool a couple blocks away. Everyone goes. Well, most everyone from my school. You go? Nah. Afraid you'll short circuit? I'm banned. Max Cox. Abby looks proud of herself. Oofta. <laughs> What'd you do? They claim I filled the pool with soapy bubbles. Did you? She shrugs, but her grin blows her too cool demeanor. What's oofta mean? Oofta, it's originally Scandinavian, like a swear word. Abby puts on her sunglasses. They sit and stare at Pikes Peak Mountain. Max looks miserable. A few minutes later, Max bolts up. He gathers his things. I'm supposed to call my mom this afternoon. To tell her all about your exciting afternoon. We tell each other everything. You don't? Abby stares at him. Then she dries her feet. Max waits. She walks him into the house, then to the front door. She holds open the screen door. Tell Estelle I said hi. He nods, leaves. Abby shuts the door, then goes straight to the kitchen. She finds the photocopied pages Max brought. She rips them into tiny pieces. She runs water over them in the sink, then hides them deep in the trash can. <laughs> Exterior Sapienti house moments later. Max tries the front door. It's locked. He walks to the back door. Locked. Back to the porch. He pokes around the windows. No luck. He flops down on the steps and weighs his options. Interior Conklin House kitchen. Moments later. Abby goes through a pile of bills at the kitchen table. She hears a knock, goes back to the front door. Max stands there, sheepish. Abby lets him in. They walk back out to the pool. In the days since their first hangout at the pool, Max and Abby both tried very hard to get out of this forced friendship. They both failed. Interior Conklin House a few days later. Abby blasts a Top 40 song on her boombox and dances around the living room. She's enthusiastic and very spastic. Exterior Conklin House, moments later. Estelle's car stops in front of the house. Max climbs out with his tote bag. He slowly marches up to the porch. Max cringes as the music, at the music coming from the house. He rings the doorbell. No response. He knocks on the front door. Nothing. Bangs on the door. Nothing. Max tries the door handle. It opens. He steps inside. Abby! She freaks. Max turns off the music. You were creeping around watching me? Not with that god-awful song. Oh, but otherwise you're a creep. Max <laughs> shoots her a look of pure contempt. Estelle said you'd be expecting me. Abby sighs as only a put-upon teenage girl can. Want a soda? You mean a pop? Want it or not? He nods. She gets the drinks. Max sets out a fresh batch of photocopied pages on the table. What's the Merck manual? The fucking bane of my existence. <laughs> the medical reference. Got that. Basically, my mom calls Estelle and lists her symptoms. Estelle looks it up and then, hey, what do you know? My mom goes and gets diagnosed. When she gets a prescription, she calls Estelle to ask the side effects and guess what happens? She fakes it. 
Shut up. You don't know my mother. She gathers her things, turns to Max. Coming or going? Going, preferably. They stomp out the back door. Exterior pool, later. Abby and Max are melted into their chairs. She reads Sassy Magazine. He reads Rolling Stone. She glances at Max, then studies a magazine page. Is this true? That there are better places to be? Yes. (laughs) Duh. But since you're here... 94% of guys said loyalty is the most important trait in a girlfriend. What the hell are you reading? Sassy. It's it's an alternative to those boofy teen magazines like Young Miss. God forbid you're an actual girl. God forbid you have friends. (laughs) They have a stare off. Max caves first. What was the most important trait? Loyalty. Then what was number two? Fetching? (laughs) Abby giggles. Max is very pleased with himself. (laughs) How about this? 66% of boys says that looking good together is important in a long-term relationship. In the same way people look like they're pets? (laughs) Sounds like these guys want puppies, not actual girlfriends. She laughs loud and long. He grins. They have a moment. (laughs) Can't come over tomorrow. I, I have an interview for a job at the computer lab. Your mom makes you work, said the boy with money. (laughs) Max reads his magazine. Abby swishes her feet in the pool. Friday would be cool, though. I'm sure Estelle will have me in here. They smile and quickly return to reading their magazine. The end. you guys. Thank you so much to the readers, the actors. Did you guys notice Jenny Taylor Whitehorn among the actors who used to used to work at Lighthouse and then moved away and then we lured her back? Um, thank you, Jessica. That was beautiful and funny and wonderful. And thank you to all the readers. Let's give one more round. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.